BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello, and welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today I'm speaking with Michael Thompson, New York Times bestselling author and psychologist. He co-authored or authored Raising Cain, Protecting the Emotional Life of Boys, Speaking of Boys, Answers to the Most Asked Questions About Raising Sons, which is such a fantastic idea, even, just that you could go read through a book and get Q&A and kind of not have to read in order. I love that um, for parents. It's a boy understanding your son's development from birth to 18 and most recently homesick and happy how time away from parents can help a child grow. So I'm so happy to have this time with Michael. He's got such a beautiful way of speaking with parents. I love the idea that I'm going to steal from Michael of not punching parents in the nose and really um, having a more positive and supportive attitude. Well, Actually, it's the hardest thing any of us ever do. <laughs> there so you go. You don't want to punch somebody in the nose. It's working so hard at it. There's a lot that makes parents already feeling bad. I mean, I'm a mom. They're, they're so ready to feel bad. They're so ready to feel guilty. And the more perfectionistic a parent, in a way, the more fragile they are because the more they're ready to turn on themselves. And, and then cut to, that's kind of how kids are. Right. You're very well known for boy stuff. How do you see the evolution of those differences between boys and girls? Well, I think the human brain is 90% overlapping. I mean, when all children need love and care and guidance and challenge and discipline, sometimes, I mean, and certainly uh, guardrails a lot of the time. Um, so those things aren't gendered. But there are certain uh, traits. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about two bell-shaped curves overlapping, 90% uh, overlapping, but those shoulders that stick out are different. And they tend to be the things we identify as stereotypically female or stereotypically male. Everybody fights against those stereotypes. But there are some things that I think are built in. Mm -hmm, for sure. That does not mean, and I want your listeners to know, I'm not talking about the male brain and the female mm -hmm. brain as if they were different, but there are tendencies in boy brains. And the one that is most striking is that by school age, three quarters of boys in a co-ed class are more physically active than any girl. Three-quarters of boys are more physically so active than any girl, and it makes their school experience quite different. I had a, uh, a six-year-old boy say to me, you can't do anything in school. Oh. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you can't wrestle, you can't get on tables, you can't do anything, <laughs> right? And 
I had a friend who worked in Chicago. She got a PhD uh, with me uh, at University of Chicago, and she trained Head Start teachers. And she, I mean, that was the age when boys were coming into school. And she said, so many boys experience school as jail. Mm -hmm. And that changes boys' attitudes towards learning and authority, and sometimes in really unhappy ways. So that's why I write. I'm trying to get teachers and parents to understand about boys. It's so important, especially right now, because we're talking so much about how to raise empowered girls and how to change the culture so that boys are, um, you know, they're coming into a different kind of world. Mm -hmm. But I also, I think there are some things to borrow from the way boys are perceived. And I know this might be, um, I'll probably want to edit it out because it's such a horrifying thing to say, but I am amazed at how the girls are so used to being so good in school from just the beginning of circle time and preschool. Right. And the boys get so battered <laughs> because they're just not, you know, like they're not the shining example in the class and they're not, you know, look over here at Sally who's sitting so nicely. Right. And I do think that there's, you know, we could take a little bit of the boy stuff where they're kind of they are wanting to stand on the desk and they are kind of getting into trouble a little bit more than the girls early on. And while I think it would be wonderful to talk through and figure out how to educate boys in a way that speaks to them, it would also be really great for girls to stop growing in the school environment where the expectation of them is that they're perfect. And then from then on, there is no space to be right. to feel and, criticized. And, and people are like, what, what's troublesome to me, though, is that unwittingly, mm -hmm. teachers with good hearts unwittingly make girl behavior the gold standard yes. in the classroom. And when teachers do that, they are uh, going to be disappointed in the boys. And the boys are going to sense the teacher's disappointment in them. Look, because they're so physically active and because when boys get together, um, there's a kind of a mob effect mm -hmm. to their play. They, they gin each other up. And you see that starting in boys between three and four. The late Eleanor Maccabee, the great, yes. the great Eleanor Maccabee. You and I are both trained uh, developmental psychologists, and we, 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 we know her work. But she says, boys and girls split for the purposes of play, sometime around three. And it's the girls who abandon the boys. The boys don't know that they're being left because <laughs> they used to play with the girls right. in preschool, Right. And the girls are saying, the girls go to the teachers and say, the boys play too rough. And then the girls are involved in more fantasy and verbal-based play. And boys are involved in more raucous, physically-based play. And that makes a difference in the order or disorder of the classroom. And a teacher who's looking to have a quiet and orderly classroom is going to have more, inevitably, going to have more clashes with boys. Boys get that as long as they know that their teacher loves them and doesn't blame boys. What I know from working in elementary schools is if a group of boys figure out that their teacher really prefers girls, I mean really right. prefers girls, they organize and they torment her. Mm. And her prophecy that boys are trouble uh -huh. is then fulfilled. So what are the common misconceptions about raising boys? Well, the most common one any boy will rebut you is that Boys aren't uh, don't have the entire emotional repertoire that girls have because they're telling you all about it, or many of the girls are. 
and boys are not. And so are boys not feeling or able to identify their feelings? When I ask the boys, they reject that outright. They just know that the rules are different for them, that they have to hide their social, their emotional lives sometimes. And they accept that as part of boy life. And when does that, so when do we see that shift? Well, Judy Chu wrote a book about it, and she sees it as early as four. Mm -hmm. It's there, but it's actually in dads who often say to mm -hmm. me, uh, you know, I want my son to be tough. Well, the moment you say that, you're saying don't express mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of feeling. What boys know by early on is boys aren't supposed to cry. Well, that's rubbish. Of course, boys cry mm -hmm. a lot. They really do. Yeah. Um, it's so interesting because um, a lot of the dads that I talk to, and this is so small, but I've noticed it every year for many, many years, around one, it's as soon as you're walking, it's really popular in the New York City playgrounds to have a stroller, a little baby stroller. Right. And they're so, they're, they're, people steal them if you don't, they're not stealing them for real, but during play. And so a lot of the moms will actually ask, can I get? a little stroller and a baby doll for my son right. as if there's a right or a wrong answer to that and they need permission. The dads will get really upset about it. Even the most open-minded, emotionally kind of excited to share their feelings, they they think, they right. say, but a stroller and a one-year-old boy really throws them into a tizzy. So a girl who walked into the living room wearing her father's shoes or, or his baseball hat, everybody would say, isn't that Adorable. cute? But a boy who walks in wearing his mother's high heels. Right. And a oh my necklace. God. Well, unless Is it's he... a really left-leaning family, right, you know, right. it's a family that's embracing gender fluidity. But fathers are trained by their own experience as boys mm -hmm. not to do things which would invite teasing or bullying. Ah. And that's what they're afraid of for their sons. If my son doesn't fit a certain mold... Will he then take heat from the boy group? And the answer is probably yes. Wow. So there is a boy hierarchy, and it's generally crafted in middle school by the earlier developing, more athletic boys. And they, they define what is masculine as athletic or whatever. So you're looking at a guy who was not very athletic and was a very anxious boy. So I was a bright student, so I became editor of the school paper um, and wrote editorials about how the school overvalued athletics. Well, that oh, just, wow. That just, get, but just, that just gets you into the nerd hall of fame. Yes, but that's very brave. <laughs> no, no, but everybody says Michael Thompson's only writing that because he's a terrible athlete, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. If he were a better athlete, he wouldn't have to write these things. <laughs> it's interesting. I was going to say I think it's much better now, but maybe it's not much better. What are you finding? Um. No, if you ask a second a, a group of second grade boys to rank order all the boys in their class in terms of athletic ability, they will do it with unerring accuracy for everybody in the class but themselves. Wow. They they know exactly where everybody stands. Boys are watching just as girls watch each other's what they're wearing. Right. They can rank appearing. popularity you know, and if yeah. they're like boys can rank athletic ability. Because they know it's a source of status. And then, of course, the non-athletic boys kind of in their own minds want to be more 
or hoping they'll turn a corner and be more athletic. Mm-hmm. You know, moms come up to me all the time and say, Dr. Thompson, I'm very, my son, you know, Dr. Thompson, and it's an uncomfortable conversation. They say, he doesn't really like town sports. And I, I hear them saying, is he going to be lonely? Mm-hmm. Will he have friends? Will he cut the mustard as a boy? And this is what I say to moms. You know, 50% of boys are of below average athletic ability. <laughs> That's such they, a great thing to and say. And then they think, oh, my God, it's <laughs> half of boys. And I say, that half of boys are never going to like town sports as much as the boys who are above mm-hmm. average. They'll find a way to peel off and do something that they love and that they care about. And as did my son, as did m- many boys and men. So, but you, you kind of slip away from athletics uh, when you realize who, who are going to be the really successful boys. It's, it's evident by eighth or ninth grade. How can you help raise an emotionally intelligent boy. I guess I'm wondering what can parents do during that shift from being super close and affectionate and and knowing your child to letting go so that they can evolve and that relationship can evolve, but still promote like a healthy emotional life. Right. Well, let, let's go back. We have to go back because on average, baby boys cry more than baby girls. Uh-huh. They're harder to settle. Mm -hmm. And most moms, whatever their expectations about having a rugged boy, sense, whoa, this this kid's kind of emotionally fragile. Uh And in my documentary film that I did for PBS uh, a decade ago, we have films of baby girls who are able to settle themselves in a a stressful situation where their moms wouldn't pay any attention to them. And that's Raising Cain, the documentary film, right? The PBS documentary. Okay. and it's wonderful footage, yes. wonderful footage. But boys, when their moms tune them out or do give them a poker face, a stone face, the experiment is called, they, go, they get desperate. Mm-hmm. They get angry. They get furious. They can't stand it. And moms feel that, oh, he needs me so much. He mm-hmm. wants me so much. And they want to honor that. I know that because my daughter Joanna is doing that for my grandson. Mm-hmm. Um, they know the girls are going to be just fine, and they they respond less they sensitively. They sense that the girls may have the capacity to settle themselves mm-hmm. when a little boy doesn't. So mothers become overprotective mm-hmm. of boys. Mothers in general provide a sanctuary for children, right? When a toddler falls and smack hits the ground, the mother's running, mm-hmm. right? The fathers wait <laughs> half a second or a second. To see if the baby's going to pop up on his or her own. That's that's the fathering effect. And Kyle Pruitt's written about that. But moms are right in there. So then the question is, how do I not constantly rescue this boy? How do I uh, let him develop his independence? When I developed all these kind of worries about his emotional fragility. And, and how do I deal with the fact that now that he's with a group of boys of 11-year-olds, he wants to look tough, and he doesn't want to talk to me about his friends all the time. Mm-hmm. And does that mean I'm shut out of his emotional life? Mm-hmm. And there's a real choice point for many mothers because they want to stay emotionally in touch. 
they know the father may not be able to pick up the thread. There are moms who wish, well, you talk to him now, he, mm-hmm. right? He's 12. He's hitting puberty. You, you know about that man <laughs> stuff. But most fathers aren't going to pick it up in the way that the mother did it. Mothers have to have confidence that they, they built the foundation in this boy. They're always going to be there. And you know what I tell moms who've lost confidence, and this is a little manipulative, I say if you read any war history, any battlefield history, when young men are dying on the battlefield, who are they calling for? So true. They're calling for their moms. Mm -hmm. You're there always if you're a mom. But you have to get more elegant and efficient and have a sense of humor. What's troubling to me is when mothers get so disappointed and then they kind of get uh, driven away. Let, let, let me give you an example. I had a 14-year-old boy say to me, there's just no point in talking to my mom. And I said, why not? And he said, she's always disappointed that I don't say more. Right, 14, he's not going to say a lot. Um, but he could tell every conversation was going south with his mom because she was asking him, how are you questions? Mm-hmm. These open-ended, let's start a conversation between... Uh, a mother and a daughter, or a mother and her best girlfriend, right? right? A 14-year-old boy hears the question, how are you? And he thinks, what's she after? (laughs) Where's this headed, right? Mm -hmm. That's what she's thinking about. Right, and and there is an agenda. Yeah, the mother wants to get at your feelings. I think when you talk to boys, you say, you're upset. Mm. You're upset. I bet it's because your friend, something about your friend, something about your coach, just say, I see you're upset. Observe a boy's mm-hmm. emotional life, provide him some of the language of it, and take yes, no for an answer. And right? let, and then let that go. Yeah, mm-hmm. don't get all sad and disappointed. Right, that's the other thing is responding. With, if you're sad and disappointed, then your son has to look at you and think, well, now I have to take care of you. Yeah, or darn, I was trying to be independent, but now my mother's all weepy. What am I, how am I going to manage that, you know? How, how can we talk about porn with boys? Right, well, with courage. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I taught eighth grade sex education mm-hmm. to boys' school for years. And oh, my God, that must All the boys wild. are using porn as a masturbatory aid. I mean— And uh, when do they start, do you really the think— The average of? American child sees pornography for the first time at age 11. Right. And parents want to start— Talking to them Later. about it at 14, right. it's like late to the party. If your kids have access to the internet, you have to talk to them about sex and sexuality, mm-hmm. and you have to talk to them in fairly frank and graphic ways mm-hmm. and say, if you see this stuff, it's going to make you uncomfortable. I want to know that mm-hmm. you're seeing it. It's exciting. It's also forbidden. And these are the reasons we don't want you to see it. And um, should you be explicit, even with an 11-year-old, about the, the reasons behind waiting on that and the things that are going on with porn for kids that are, as they're getting older? Or is it like, let's just... We, look, I'm somebody who believes you start, I mean, I, I, I hope I've sold a lot of Roby Harris's books. Uh, I know Roby, I was consulted with her when she was starting to write her books, but it, it's not the historic, yeah, it's perfectly no, we, amazing. And here, the, it, it, all of these books are really wonderful, and you should get them on Amazon. And they actually have age guidelines on them, and you they, can start it early in preschool. Well, 
see, I'm the father of adopted children. Mm -hmm. And the social worker who talked to us said, you have to start talking about adoption when you're diapering your baby. We're so glad we adopted you. But what they didn't include was when you have an adopted child, you have to start sex education early too. Well, that's such a good point, right? right? You can't you can't avoid the talk no. because if you some your child started off in somebody else's tummy, yeah, right, uh, you're going to have early talk. So that I add, why was I adopted mm-hmm. to that to the Roby Harris books? Wonderfully helpful, but I our kids knew the facts of life and how people babies got made and born and yeah. how um, early on. So I'm not frightened of it. If you wait too long, then it then it is frightening. But if kids know that there's such a thing as sex and it's connected to love and you, and you can say to them, you know, the sex you'll see in the Internet is not connected to love and right. it's not the way we want you to love. Yes, it's exciting. Yes, it's fascinating. And it's human. But it's not what we want you to shape your uh, your future love life. Mm-hmm. Around, so I just want to pause and say how important this is because what you're what you're talking about is you're not introducing sex when you introduce porn. You've already they already know about sex and right. they know about all of how, all of the things that you just mentioned right way before porn is on the table. Yes, so that you're not introducing both of those things at the same time. Right. Look, when I asked the eighth grade boys at Belmont Hill, how many of you have had a meaningful discussion? with your parents about sex, mm-hmm. one quarter of them have. Wow. Most of the boys who have a good education about sexuality had it in fifth grade in the Lexington Public Schools. Mm-hmm. The public schools do a much better job than independent mm-hmm. schools, in my opinion. And the boys who are have had an early education are better prepared. I mean, duh. Mm-hmm. And, and then you can have those conversations, those yeah. more difficult conversations about porn. And, yeah. But by eighth grade, if they're already masturbating to porn, are you having conversations with them about the boundaries that you have in the household around porn? Or do you well, suggest letting go? Well, no boy wants to discuss masturbation with his parents. Right. <laughs> when I was a middle schooler, the favorite joke was um, – uh, has your mother ever caught you masturbating, jerking off in the closet? And you'd say no. And the the punchline of the joke was, good place, isn't it? Right? Everybody, <laughs> every boy is afraid of being caught. Every mother's afraid of catching. Them. Yeah, exactly right. Um, so there's a natural barrier between mm-hmm. uh, a parents and children around the, the child's sexuality. And you, you have to push through that barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, to have these conversations, but it helps to have ha- always had them. Mm. Uh, it's a long time ago. My daughter's now 34, and the mother, the sainted mother of my three uh, 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 grandchildren. But my wife and she used to watch Real World together. Mm-hmm. Was that MTV mm-hmm. early on? Yeah. And it led to more good discussions about relationships and sexuality because when they put these people out in the apartments together, they all start to sleep together, Mm -hmm. right? And that's perfectly evident. And I couldn't bear the program. (laughs) but I don't think my wife liked it particularly, but she said it was a great chance to talk frankly. And and that's what parents – parents have to have some courage. If you don't have courage, 
The internet is going to Somebody educate else is going to educate no, kids, and it'll be the internet, right. Yeah. And actually, I think that's a good point because there's a lot of television that we're trying to prevent our kids from watching, and we feel really strict about the quality and content, but you can sit and use TV the same way you can use video games that you hate to connect with your child and right. talk about these difficult things. That's right. To what kids need is somebody at their shoulder mm-hmm. talking to them. How are you talking with parents about and the boys about their experience with video games and the relationships they they build around those video games? Well, and to make a joke of it, moms ask me, they say, do video games make boys violent? And I say, well, uh, no, there's no scientific evidence for that at all. And then they say, well, my son makes him very aggressive. And I said, well, describe that to me. Well, he gets mad at me when I tell him to <laughs> leave his video game. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Even though there have been many researchers looking at video games, we have not seen a clear link, correlation, causation between uh, dangerous, aggressive behaviors mm-hmm. and video games. Do the aggression centers in the brain light up when you're playing a first-person shooter game? Sure. Does it immediately go off when the game's off? Yes, but that happens in sports too. That happens right. a lot of th- things. Maybe the desensitization of looking well, at images is a different thing. That's what that's what people worry about. And people, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, a, a Army Ranger, wrote a book where we are desensitizing our children. What we have not seen um, is an increase in violence while we've had an increase in video games. In fact, we've had a 25-year decline mm. in criminal violence in this country. Unexpected criminal vi- uh, decline uh, in criminal violence, which is concurrent with video games. I'm not saying it's video games are making us less violent. It, it just is I'm, First of all, I'm not a criminologist or a sociologist. What people do is they go retrospectively and they look at a school shooter and they say, well, he was playing these violent video games. And we've been doing that since Columbine. But there was extraordinary mental illness there and, and there are much more powerful explanations. I This knee-jerk dislike of video games mm-hmm. is anti-boy to me. Mm. Oh, wow. Say more, please. Well, moms don't want to play. They don't like these games because totally. they involve shooting. Okay. And they so they imagine that they're dangerous. Yeah. What they really are upset about is that their boys are not playing out in front right. of them in a healthy way. It does seem. But what moms don't and dads don't take into account is that neighborhood play has died. Yeah. And people don't feel safe letting their children play outside the house. And for boys, the screen is the new out of doors. Mm. That's where they meet up with their friends. That's what I was going to get yeah. at. Yeah. yeah. So they're they're not just playing a game by themselves, but it's social. Yeah. And a mother at my school came into her uh, middle school boys. I think he was a seventh grader, and she watched him play a multi-player uh, game. And he had, of course, the headphones on the microphone. And she realized he was talking to a boy at his school who lived only four blocks away. And she said, well, son, why don't you just invite him over? He said, mom, it's fine. <laughs> but she couldn't leave him alone. She came back. She said, well, why, I mean, why don't the two of you play it together? And he said, mom, it's fine. She came in a third time. And then he was annoyed. Right. And he turned to her. He said, mom, 
it wouldn't be any more fun if you were actually here, right? <laughs> and she's nostalgic for something, but most kids aren't used to going four right. blocks anymore. They didn't give that up. It just doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. I had it growing up in New York. I went I went all over mm-hmm. from the age of 10. I went everywhere in the city. Mm-hmm. I had a bus and subway pass. Sure. We, had, we had a run-up of crime mm-hmm. from 75 to 95, right. which was deeply scarring to everybody's psyche. Yes, and that's when I was here. And then we've now had a 20-plus year decline that's mm-hmm. returned us to actually where we are in the 50s. But our president and many other people don't know it because they <laughs> they think it's a horror show out mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's changed, but it's changed parenting forever. And that makes me sad. Because people need to help their middle schoolers get that freedom again and have that autonomy. Free play. Free play. Free undirected play is perhaps the most healing thing. Uh, and town sports, things played supervised by adults between white lines, mm-hmm. doesn't replace free play. It's not the same. Where do Screens you are psychologically addictive. And the challenge of parenting is teaching children how to play these games and how to get off them. Mm-hmm. And you have to start early. You get on, you get off. You get on, you get off. You get on, you get off. Because as adults, yeah. we're we're all addicted. The average American interacts with his or her phone 200 times a day. That's average. Um, so that we have to prepare our children for a life of devices and not being swallowed up by mm-hmm. the devices. But I think that we have to be more deliberate about creating spaces for free play. Why are boys more anxious? Why are children more anxious? Mm-hmm. I'm if I had to look at one villain, it would be the loss of free undirected play. How are you, how are the schools or how can parents help with that when anxiety is going up and pressure's on, really insisting on free play and letting go of any other structured activity? Yeah, um, what many parents do to fight the the screens just, this time is to hyper-schedule. Right. I, I know parents who Actually, are so grateful for homework because it keeps their kids off. It's so uh, true. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's a crazy trade-off. I actually hear that a lot. Well, whatever, if we don't plan the weekend carefully, our kids would be on screens the whole time. Well, then they that's that's feckless parenting. <laughs> uh, you have limits on screens. Right. But they have to be limits for the adults as well, the kids. You can't have your kids kept off screens while you're, and, on. Well, you're constantly on. You have to have a clear thing. Is there going to be any screen time during the week? I meet kids through elementary and into middle school have no screen time during the week, mm-hmm. only on the weekends. And then how many hours per day? And you have to have a server you can shut down. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's a very important message. You don't just either decide to allow it or you 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 have to ration. I think it's right. I think it's too extreme to have kids never on screens ever. Yeah. Um, well, it's not realistic. It's not realistic, but you can limit the time. What are a couple of your favorite questions from the boy book? I'm calling it the boy book. Oh, speaking of boys. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. No, this was a this is maybe the most fun book I ever wrote because my co-author, Teresa Barker, and I were given six weeks to oh. write a book. Oh. Um, but it was – Raising Cain was hot. And mm-hmm. you had to get another one out. And the agent wanted to – you know, it was there it was. And 
So Teresa Barker, wonderful writer and journalist, she went out and interviewed moms because I stupidly hadn't been keeping all of the questions mm-hmm. on cards. So she would go out and ask interview moms. She would shoot me a couple of questions every day. I'd answer them. She'd edit them. Uh, she'd ask some follow-up questions. I'd answer them. And we we churned this book out. It was a blast. But I saved my favorite one for the last. And it's how do I get my 14 or 15-year-old son to talk more? Mm-hmm. And I joke now that I have given the answer to moms where they can increase their son's output from four words to eight. <laughs> double. Double the verbal output of a boy. When you're talking to a boy, the kinds of questions, I referred to this earlier, these kind of open-ended, emotionally laden, how are you, uh, questions. Ask boys uh, questions that are concrete, that have a finite answer, and that are not endless. They will answer it. Ask a boy a question that uses him as a consultant on himself. I'm thinking you like Mr. Anderson this year's math teacher better than Mr. Bailey last year's math teacher. Okay? <laughs> it's it's actually the opposite of a conversation with a girl. Right. There's only one person on earth who can answer the question of whether he prefers mm-hmm. Mr. Anderson or Mr. Bailey. So that puts him in the driver's seat. And he can say, no, that isn't true. And you say, well, I'm confused. It looked like you preferred Mr. Anderson. No, that isn't true. Okay. Well, can you explain to me, and maybe he gives you a sentence. Yeah, Mr. Bailey wasn't as good a math teacher, but he was fairer, or his tests were easier. I don't know. You put a boy in the driver's seat. You're asking a concrete question. Look, I learned when I moved from co-ed schools. When I was a, a psychologist in co-ed schools, two-thirds of my business was girls, many of whom self-referred and wanted to come back to the second meeting, <laughs> right? When I moved to an all-boys school, uh, one year I looked up, I saw 44 boys. 43 of them had been sent right. by their advisors or the dean of students. And many of them dread the second meeting. But they'll come. I say, you know, I think we need to talk a second time. Well, okay. Boys respond to a hierarchy. And if you can say with some authority, I, I think we need, we're not quite done, right? A boy will come back. That's so great. Um, but some boys don't come back. And then you have to track them down. If you don't track them down, they don't think you really mean it right? With boys, I always say, are you as worried about you as your advisor is? No, no, my mom called my advisor and got him all worked up, right? Mm. It all goes back to my mom is trying to crack into me. Mm -hmm. And I've had to actually push some mothers back who just were sure that their sons needed therapy, but it's because the mom was not getting all the information she wanted, and now she wants somebody else to do the digging. And I've seen some boys at my school thrive after we talked the mother out of. They just needed to live, live their lives. I said, you can tell whether your boy is unhappy at the school. Does he want to go to school? Does he talk about any teachers with enthusiasm? Is he excited about a course? Does he like his coaches? Does he feel he has friends at the school? You don't have to constantly ask, how are you? But you can compare and contrast questions. You know, if a boy moves to us from public middle school, he's a ninth grader now for us. And his mother says, uh, do you have better friends now mm-hmm. at Belmont Hill than you had in public school? That's an answer. He can say yes or no. Right. And then maybe he can elaborate. But you will get information. 
if it's specific and concrete. Well, I'm, I've done that to death now. No, it's so it's such a good tip. And how do you see anxiety presenting in boys? If you are worried, but they aren't talking to you, what are the signs that you see? Well, they avoid stuff, mm-hmm. and they tend to downgrade stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I hate that. I don't like it. I hate school, i.e. it makes me anxious. But by middle school, and certainly in adolescence, most very anxious boys, no, forgive me, there are obviously anxious boys, unmistakably anxious boys. There's no doubting it. And they may tell you, <laughs> all you have to say is, this makes you nervous, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? I, I went with a ninth grade class to Camp Beckett, uh, Western Massachusetts, from our school. And there were boys who were terrific athletes, but a ropes course and heights <laughs> made them just crazy. Well, mm-hmm. I understood. I was terrified of heights when mm-hmm. I was a boy, right? Um, I wanted to overcome it. I really, really wanted to overcome it, but I was scared. And I, I sit sometimes with the boys on the rocks watching the ropes course, and we talk about anxious. It is to go. If you'll broach it. They're, they're you, in? You say, um, how are you about this? Okay is what they'll say, but you say, you know, every year there's some boys who get pretty anxious or what I can say from the heart is I was scared of heights when I was a boy. Is that mm-hmm. true of you? Well, that's a yes, no question, mm-hmm. right? And most boys won't deny it if you name it and if you say, if you normalize it. So there's those kinds of things. But th- what they will reject is, oh, poor dear. Oh, I see how anxious. Oh, mm-hmm. and they think, how can I have any self-respect? As a boy, I'm already anxious about the ropes course, and all this tide of sympathy is is unraveling me. So that's where you back off. You can hear the information, but you don't need to turn it into oh, a catastrophe, or your mother is so worried about you. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, moms ask me why doesn't my son talk to me, and I say, well. You're trying to talk to a 14-year-old. He talks to you for a little while. He feels 13. He talks to you for a little while longer. He feels 12 and then 11. And it's called the regressive pull of the mother. There you go. Right? Mm. And the mom is pulling for, I love the days when you were younger and told me everything. And if you're going oh. to make <laughs> it, you have to celebrate, celebrate a boy's growth, mm. even though it seems to make him a little distant from you. Some of what you're going to have to do is respect his courage and his independence. Well, actually, I I did want to ask you about how to, now we're here in 2019 and we want, you know, we're having different hashtags about raising boys and girls. How are we raising boys to adjust to not being Entitled princes. I, uh, we wrote in Raising Cain that there are two mistakes that people make. One is uh, thinking boys are wild animals and boys will be boys and excusing them morally, right. which is inexcusable and unattractive. But the other is raising them as entitled princes. Mm. And that makes another unattractive. That makes a boy unattractive in a different way. And what does that look like? Well, for my grandson, it's that he doesn't need to learn to speak because his two older sisters do everything for him. All he has to do is grunt and point, and girls run and fetch and carry for him. Yeah. And there's got to be an end to that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have two older sisters, 
that's a bigger challenge, right? Because right? right? now you have mom and your two older sisters. One reason why I'm de- delighted that he's going to go to Montessori school. Montessori mm. school, you have to clean up after yourself and put all your stuff back. My son, totally. my son Will went to a school, and my son always had the expectation that you clean up after yourself and you put back because that's the Montessori way. Yes. Well, it doesn't have to be just the Montessori way. But I'm going to tell you a story that I love. This is a teacher in Washington, D.C. told me this story. She said when she was 12, her mother said to her, sweetie, would you make your brother a sandwich? I have to go out. Would you make him a sandwich? And the girl said, he can make his own sandwich. <laughs> and she said, well, he doesn't really know how. And would you just make him a sandwich? It won't take you a second. And she said, the daughter said, no, he can make his own sandwich. And the mother said, well, um, look, he doesn't really know how. And, and the daughter said, mom, that's your fault. And the mom said, just make him a sandwich. And the daughter said, I'm 12, he's 14, he can make his own damn sandwich. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I love that story. When you're asking a level of competence and independence of a 12-year-old girl and not asking of it of a 14-year-old boy. I mean, that could have been a 6-year-old and an (laughs) 8-year-old. Right. So now, are boys spacier? Um, are they less focused on the elements of the household? I had a father once who said, Dr. Adams, I'm, I'm so frustrated with my six-year-old son. I send him upstairs to get dressed for school, and he doesn't come down, he doesn't come down, and I find him in his underwear playing with his Star Wars stuff. And I say, well, yeah, I, but he's six. Why are you so frustrated? He said, because his four-year-old sister is completely dressed right. and ready to go, right? <laughs> And that, uh, the the maturity of the little girl. Yes. Uh, it was, Supersedes. Yeah. If you have a boy who, who's a space shot, then you don't send him upstairs to get dressed. You walk him up and stand there and say, son, get dressed. Right? Yes. But you don't put him in the same situations. He does this as a matter of habit and a matter of experience. What I don't want is this. A swim coach in Lexington, Massachusetts, told me that she had a boy show up as a swim club. He showed up for a meet, and he had no goggles. Well, you can't compete in swimming with goggles. Mm -hmm. She said, where are your goggles? And he said, he went went to his duffel bag. He said, oh, my mom forgot to put them in here. Yikes. Well, what you don't want is a 15-year-old who's still dependent on his mother to put Mm -hmm. his goggles in. If he values swimming, got to jolly well have goggles. So he has to be disappointed. And you have to disappoint him. I had a mother at a summer, told me her son came back from a summer camp. And she said, I think his socks and underwear are spread all over the Canadian Northwoods. She said, because he's never kept track of his clothes. But by the end of the summer, he was paddling a canoe, wearing jeans with no underwear, pretty uncomfortable. And she said, he came back and he's taking better care of his clothes because he did, he he was uncomfortable. So part of this is getting comfortable with their discomfort and understanding that they will they will live up to it. You just start early building these good habits. It's so funny. It's just I do think for mothers you get that the girls are going to be able to figure it out and you just know so much. Right. And then they reinforce that by doing it. Right. And so you just have so much less faith in the boys. And if we could all just – Yeah, what's that less faith in the boys? Yeah. I mean – it's it's a terrible setup for them. I, I, I do, but it means you have to ask them 
and let them screw up、mm-hmm. and let them do, if they're inclined, a half-assed job. Right. You can have a bad sandwich. So you know I'm a big fan of camps. Thank you for listening, and if you liked today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review.